Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read, start in verse 10 to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then I'm going to read out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish-Austrian doctor who was imprisoned in Auschwitz in World War II and survived. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he told stories from his time there and described how various prisoners dealt with the despair of being in that concentration camp. Many, he said, responded to the hopeless situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves, just like their captors. A kind of survival of the fittest was the mindset. Others, Frankl said, just gave up. Just completely gave up. He wrote, usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us who had been at Auschwitz for a while. We all feared for this moment and our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society would be restored to them. But after liberation, they found those things irretrievably gone or changed forever. And many went into deep depression. Many of the survivors even died by suicide. Hopes had been shattered because their hopes were on those things. Frankel said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point outside the world. 
something they held onto that was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. Those are the ones that made it through in a healthy way. Like the prisoners at Auschwitz, for many of us, our hopes is some fixed reference point in this world. Too often, we would call that a flimsy hope, indeed. Building a house on the sand. That our circumstances will change, right? One day we think things will get better. I'll get my job back. I'll find a spouse. My bank account will grow. I'll I'll be healed from this chronic pain. But what if those things don't happen? You don't get the job. You don't get married. The pain doesn't go away. Do you have a living hope? That's what Peter called it, a living hope that death can't touch. A refuge that the challenges of life can't overcome. A shelter that the storms of life can't shake. A living hope. So today, I want to see the helmet of salvation. And then as it says in Thessalonians, because I think this was Paul's aspect. We talked about the helmet of salvation a little bit already, but the helmet of the hope of salvation. And then finally, and this may seem out of order, why hopelessness is good. So a little bit of background, we've been talking about spiritual warfare. Any life that yields to the work of the Holy Spirit to be made more like Jesus every day, And to be involved in the mission of Jesus. What is Jesus' mission? Seeking and saving that which is lost, right? The restoration of all things. So any life that is engaged in that walk with Jesus will face tremendous opposition. No matter who you are, no matter how much you've been a Christian, or if you're just getting in to the gate. As Spurgeon said, a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. We are builder battlers. We build for the kingdom of God and his kingdom, and we battle against the enemy. Not flesh and blood, as we read about, but against the enemy that wants to seek to devour and steal and kill and destroy. We have kingdom resources. We have the armor of God. And we are not to fight in our own strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not your strength. How do we get the Lord's strength? By admitting our weakness. It's the counterintuitive way of the gospel. We don't go from weakness to strength. A mature Christian goes from strength to more and more weakness. They realize how much I can't do and that I need Jesus every step of the way, every moment of the day. So it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Each piece of the armor we've learned is an aspect of the gospel applied to different part of our lives. The gospel is like a diamond full of facets and the light hits it as you turn it. It shoots color all over and light all over. And so the gospel isn't just simplistic. It's multifaceted. It's deep. It's not the shallow end of the pool. It's the whole pool. It's the deep end. It's everything. And so Paul is saying, all the gospel I've been teaching you through the chapters in Ephesians, I want you to put it on to apply it. Now, that can sound so abstract, put on the whole armor of God, apply this piece of the gospel. Have you ever rented a tuxedo? I don't know if any of you have bought them. Or a really nice fancy dress or for prom or a dance or something like that. I remember when 
I got married, we went on a cruise and my wife got such a bad sunburn. She's fair skinned and we didn't know the, we snorkeled all day without sunscreen and she was just brutally. And to the point then the humidity hit and she was like in such pain. We kept going to the dock on the ship. We were on a cruise and she was taking all this medicine. They're like, try this one. Nothing was working. And finally it like all hit at once and she slept for 20 hours straight. I had rented a tuxedo because we were going to do a fancy dinner that night. So I went and uh, put on my tuxedo and went to dinner by myself. And I was uh, playing arcade games on the ship and stuff. But I tell you, like my whole mindset was different. It wasn't flip-flops and shorts and a Hawaiian button-up. When you put on something like a tuxedo, you almost want to talk with an accent a little bit or shake and not stirred kind of a thing. And it's just by putting something on, it changes how you perceive things. And what's fascinating is we forget this as adults, but kids get it early on. Put on a princess dress, they think they're a princess. They're like convinced and it's they put on this outfit. My son wanted to be a cowboy and he dressed up like a cowboy and thought he was a cowboy. He'd like, hey, pawn, it changed everything. And, and it's fascinating to me. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, put this on and let it change how you see things, how you perceive, how you take in information, how you walk through this world. Like God loves you and will never pull that love away. How does that change how we walk through our workplace? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, not just for you, but for the world. How does that change how we work alongside a coworker who's frustrating? So we're putting on in every day, every moment of the day, these aspects of what Paul's been preaching to us. We're to take up the whole room. And we saw the belt of truth. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Jesus who is true and truth itself is to encompass our whole being, making every part of us true. Right? Which is what you get. Breastplate of righteousness. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness covering our hearts and our vital organs. Not a righteousness that we provide or earn to make God love us, but a foreign righteousness that was won for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our righteousness, is making us righteous. Jesus' life applied to us, like Jesus' life given for us, so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the beauty and the perfection of Jesus. He sees the obedience of Jesus. He relates to you, not as someone who's failed multiple times a day, but as someone who's obeyed as perfectly as Jesus. He loves you perfectly and without restraint. Preparation of the gospel of peace and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, something that keeps our feet from slipping into doubting God's love. So the gospel of peace girded about our feet, making our steps sure and secure. We remember that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we were in open rebellion to him, he chased us and pursued us and made us his friends. He loves shield of faith in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one faith is simply acting on what god says is true that's faith faith's greatest value is that it connects us with the victor the all-powerful all-sufficient lord whose victory over the enemy is our victory we can face the flaming arrows of suffering by trusting our sovereign God and King, that he is working all things together for his good, for his glory, and for our joy. So the helmet, 
and take the helmet of salvation. We talked about the different types of helmets that were worn by the Roman soldiers. One was metal and it covered the ears. It had a piece over your nose. It protected your whole head. It was heavy. And so they would take sponge out of the ocean and that they would pad it. You weren't just clanking about in a, just a metal helmet getting hit. If you're just wearing that, that would hurt. But the idea is that it, it was this complete covering. No soldier's outfit complete without the helmet. And so there is in our journey as Christians, one of the ways the enemy attacks is our mind, right? Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, and there's that conforming, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so there is a sense that the enemy wants you to think his thoughts. The Jesus wants you to think his thoughts, right? So there's a conflict, there's a battle. But we don't only face the enemy, we face the world, the flesh, the devil, right? As it talks about in 1 John. The world is trying to conform our minds into that image. We were just talking about consumerism, right? So everything in our culture is geared to you need more. If you just have this, finally you'll be happy. And all you need is this, and we're going to make it so much easier. Apple just came out with a pay later. Amazing. Is it? <laughs> because now you don't have to save and scrimp and really think about it. Now you get it now. And then you'll be happy. It'll be worth it. And so it's constantly trying to put us in this mode, this framework. That's something that we have to fight against. Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power for destroying strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You, that literally means you go and capture your thoughts and then you interrogate them. Like in a room, right? You, there's, it's two-sided mirrors, it's a bright light, you're looking at your thought and you're like, what did you mean by that? What's behind this? You're literally capturing them and interrogating them and the truth of what is truly true. You ever do that? You ever have thoughts and you're like, man, that is not, that is not of the Lord. Where did that come from? Or do you ever react? So it happens when I'm driving. I'll just leap out of my mouth and I'm like, no, wait, and I'm like, where did that come from? And so he's saying, there is a battle on the mind. There's a battle to be conformed into the image of this world, to believe the lies of the enemy. Has God really said, does God really love you? Why is he allowing all this suffering? Why is he allowing all this trials? Where's the rescue that you've read about? And to the battle on the mind. And so Paul says that the helmet, specifically of salvation and the hope of salvation, is what he gives us to battle against that. Sings one of the characters in Gilbert and Sullivan's opera, Princess Ida, right before entering a duel. Here it is. This helmet was meant to ward off blows. It's very hot and weighs a lot. So off this helmet goes. So off this helmet goes. And that's the temptation, is to step out of what God has protected and what he's given us through his work in the gospel. 
Salvation in the Bible refers to the whole scope of God's saving work. Salvation is a broader term than how we typically use it in church. We use terms like saved, I've been saved, redeemed, past tense only. If we're accustomed to use just the past tense when it talks about salvation, then we might get confused when we look at the Bible and see most of it's used in the present tense or in the future tense. Salvation in the Bible is the whole scope of redemption. God created a good world not to take from us, but to give to us out of the overflow of his heart. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you to love him. But because he is a God whose essence is love out of the overflow of his perfect community, he said, hey, let's bring more people into this. Let's share this love. Let's expand our community. Let's make man in our image. And it was beautiful, right? It was walking with God in the cool of the day, like cultivating the ground, just amazing relationship. There was this perfection almost to it. And then we believe the lie and all of earth got thrown into chaos. All of our relationships got thrown into chaos. Adam, Chuck, and Eve under the bus. And the first time they're together with a counselor, God, as he's asking them, did you run? Hiding all of a sudden who they really were, hiding behind fig leaves that they had sown. Such a picture of the religion that we build up to make ourselves look good. We cover ourselves with our apparent goodness to hide our nakedness and on. And Cain kills Abel and there's war and infighting to the point where at Noah's time it says, I see and I go across this earth and every thought is only evil continually. Like it's just a constant. It's turned the channel and every station is only evil continually. And so salvation, not only did we break, but creation broke. Romans 8 says that creation's groaning, it's waiting. In Psalms, it says the day when the Lord comes back, the trees are going to clap. Like they're going to celebrate, they're going to worship, they're going to break out of their bark, and they're going to bark. They're going to go for it. And so salvation, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's this whole sweeping epic. It's this picture from beginning to end of man lost, creation lost, man found, a man saved, creation being redeemed and restored, thorns and thistles being done away with sickness, being given a time limit, death being put in the grave. It's all this sweeping thing of what God is doing. And so we come to that salvation past. We, last time we talked about salvation past and salvation present. And I just want to touch on it briefly, and then we'll anchor in on hope. Second, Peter tells us how we should be growing in grace and in Christ-like character. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Why is he blind? Because he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. You guys know the story. I haven't told it in a long time, but you guys know it. It's H.A. Ironside tells a story about a group of settlers who were coming out west. And they hit this prairie, right? This flat, and it's just long grass for as far as the eye can see. Well, they would send out a scout just to make sure everything's okay up ahead. And they had noticed that there's some smoke in the distance. The scout rides back as fast as he can. He jumps off his horse and he gets everybody around. He says, there's a fire coming this way and the wind is blowing it right towards us. So they're surrounded in this tall, dry grass in every direction. 
and everybody starts to panic. We need to start, we need to leave now. We need to try to outrun it. And they can see the smoke is just growing. They can now see the orange from the blaze getting close. There's no way they're going to outrun it. And they know that. And there's all this panic. And then somebody has a good idea. They say, why don't we light a fire behind us? And by the time the fire gets here, we can go and we can put everything on the burned out ground and we can be safe. And so they were like, that's brilliant. And so they start a fire behind where they were and the wind takes the fire and it clears out this burnt, scorched earth. And then they move all their stuff just in time. And as the fire's approaching, this little girl asks her dad, she says, dad, are you sure we're safe? They can feel the heat of the fire. It's close. And the dad says, yes, daughter, because the fire can't go where the fire's already been. That's why Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the word there I, is so strong in Greek. It means that there's not even a trace of it left. Like when there's a fire and it burns everything, you can still smell it. You can't even smell the smell of condemnation. Gone. And we're safe in him because he took the fire. It fell on him. No more condemnation. And I just want to say, we should celebrate and praise and worship every day of our life. Just for that fact. You remember the story of the 10 lepers? They have leprosy. They're dying. They're going to die. And they're dying outside of their community, away from their families. They're outcast. And Jesus says, I'll heal you. Go show yourselves to the priests. And on their way there, they're healed. Because that limb's being restored back, sores, all of a sudden, all the skin. And one comes back who is an outsider, a Samaritan. He couldn't go show himself to the priest. He couldn't go into the temple. So he went to the priest that all the other priests pointed to, and he fell down on his knees. And he said, thank you. And it was a sign that... Because Jesus actually says, your faith has saved you. He uses the word for salvation, not just healed. And, and that was just a sign of that thankful heart, thankfulness. Spurgeon said, I do not think the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough and groan enough, but very few of us rejoice enough. It can be often that we're known, the church is known more for what we're against than what we're for. Instead of being people of perpetual gratitude, we can fall, I do, fall quickly to grumbling as the next person. Instead of this never-ending thanks, we're prone to constant complaining like the rest of the world. The variations of the word thank and thankful are used almost 150 times in the Bible. 38 of those times we're specifically told to give thanks. So this is like kind of important. The Greek word thanks is eucharisteo, which is where we get Eucharist, the Lord's Supper communion. It's the word that Jesus used when he was administering the Lord's Supper with the disciples as he broke the bread, he gave thanks. That's where we get the idea of the Eucharist, which is an amazing thing to think about because he's literally giving thanks that he's about to be torn apart for them. He's like, thank you that I get to, that should melt our hearts. Like, He's breaking, he's giving thanks as he's breaking the bread saying, this is what I'm going to do, right? But he's giving thanks. I get to do this for the Lord. I get to do this for the Lord. It, 
in Hebrew, there are at least seven words for praise and thanks. Listen to these. Todah, a Thanksgiving choir. Barak, to kneel in Thanksgiving. Tehillah, not tequila, to sing a song of Thanksgiving. Hallel, where we get our word hallelujah, to give thanks by boasting and praising God. I love that, boasting about God. He welcomes that. That's amazing. Yada, to give thanks with expressive gratitude, to extend your hands. That's a very biblical thing. Where, why do we raise our hands in worship? Zamar, to give thanks with a musical instrument. Shabbat, to give thanks in a loud tone or a shout. That doesn't really have words. C.S. Lewis talked about how being thankful is woven into a life of worshiping God. He notes that our tendency is to give God thanks for what he has done for us, the blessings that he has bestowed upon us, namely the gift of salvation through Jesus, which is awesome. We should definitely do that, literally count our blessings. But when we really get down to the root of what our thankfulness should spring from for the believer, it is not just from what God has given us. We should be thankful simply for who God is. Being thankful is one thing, Lewis says, but knowing who we're thanking leads us into a life saturated with both thanksgiving and, listen to this, thanks living, living a life of worship. Often we say, we have an attitude of gratitude. No, 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 much more than that. It's a whole life of joy and worship and gratitude and thanks and fellowship with the one true God. Think about, again, we're saved, but he also saved you to himself so that you might know how good he is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like he saved you not just to have you do your own thing. He took the people out of Egypt to bring him to himself into covenant relationship. Like he took you out of the grave of death to bring you into the newness of life that's him. Like he brought you out to bring you in. It's about him. So not only are we thankful for what God has done in saving us, but we're thankful that he saved us to himself. And that's like a deep-rooted thankfulness that he is good. You know, God is good all the time, right? Present grace, God is at work in you and at work for you. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.2 says that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith or the finisher. He is the potter. We are the clay. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So the Lord is making us more like him as we behold him. So the present work of salvation is to get us to gaze at Jesus. The Holy Spirit is preaching to our hearts as Romans 8 says, you're adopted, you're part of the family, you're his beloved child. One of my favorite parts of 1 John is he's writing and he emotes on the page. He says, behold, what man, which is terrible writing if you're sending somebody a letter. But he's like, behold, what manner of love is this? That we should be called the sons of God? This is insane. It's like it overwhelmed him as he's writing. He's like, behold, we're children of God. What love is this? So we gaze 
But the breathtaking method of the Spirit is to show us the glory of Christ. The complex verb that Paul uses, it means to behold in a mirror. This word combines the ideas of looking long and hard at something and resembling or reflecting the thing that you're looking at. We are called a long, contemplative gazing at the Lord Jesus and changing so as to reflect his image. What a vivid image that is. The more we gaze and contemplate Jesus, the more the Spirit shows us his glory, and we become transformed into the likeness of what it sees. So what does it mean to see the glory of something? Kavod in the Old Testament, it's weight, right? It means you realize in your heart its importance, the beauty and how it connects and affects you. So the way the Spirit creates character in you is by affecting the heart and the life by what in the person and the work of Jesus. That's why Jesus is central. That's why he's got to be everything. That's why he didn't say, if you lift your theology up, I'll draw them in onto myself. He didn't say, if you lift up celebrity pastors, I'll draw them in onto He didn't say, he didn't even say the church. He said, if I'm lifted up, if you lift up Jesus, he'll draw all men unto himself. It's the goal of the church is to make much of Jesus. And the goal of the spirit is to make much of Jesus through the church. That's the mission. And it's to impact us and affect in every way. So we come to 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, there's that new identity. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the biblical word hope, we talk about it versus the worldly. We use hope like I hope so. Is so-and-so coming over? I hope so. Is so-and-so coming Sunday? I hope so. And we're stuck in that way of using hope. Biblical hope never used it like that. We use it like, maybe, we'll see. I don't know. Hey, sarah, sarah. We'll, we'll be, we'll be. Biblical hope is a concrete expectation of future good. Hope is an indication of certainty. That's why Hebrews says in chapter 6 that it's an anchor for our souls. It's a concrete expectation of future good. So it's, it is being convinced so thoroughly that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do. And then shaping your life around that. When you woke up today, what was the first thing you hoped for? I, that's the first thing I wrote down. Maybe for a better night's sleep. Pain-free day. Traffic-free ride over here to Manteca. Maybe you're hoping this week the inspection at work would be delayed because you're not ready yet. Or perhaps you just hoped that someone had left you something for breakfast. Probably a few days go by without us using the word hope. I hope we're on time. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope it does rain. I hope it's not cancer. I hope she'll understand. I hope he'll be okay. I hope he isn't angry. I hope God hears this. I hope he loves me. From the smallest concerns to the grandest ones, our lives are shaped, directed, motivated, and frustrated by hope. Everyone hopes. Everyone hooks their hope to something or someone. Every person is motivated by hope. Remember that Viktor Frankl story about the people the Auschwitz, human beings are not like animals, living moment by moment by instinct. 
no matter who we are or what we have experienced, we live by hope. And hope transforms how we view the present and shapes us. You take the two workers, we're going to hire them on to dig trench for us. We just had one of our apprentices tell us that he didn't want to dig and that if he's going to be a laborer, he needs to be paid way more. We're like, never heard that one before. Um, we're like, we all dig. We all got to do it. But so you've got two guys and you tell one of them, you tell one of them, you know, you're going to make 20 bucks an hour to dig this. And you tell the other guy, you get this done by the end of the day. I'm going to bestow my inheritance on you. And he signs it over right there. But it's a couple million dollars he's worth. Those two people are going to work entirely different in the present. One's going to be like, 20 bucks an hour, I can't believe I need to be paid more. And I'm just begrudging, I can't believe we're... The other guy's like, what, what? You know, what? You know, it, it, that hope, because he's certain it's been signed over, he has a guarantee... The concrete expectation of future good, and it shapes the present moment. In Ephesians, it says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Like, he's, yes, exactly, the down payment. He's the signatory. He's the, hey. And the proof that it's so is the resurrection, right, that we've been talking about. So, it depends on what your hope is of how you're shaped in the present. It depends on where your anchor is. It depends on where you're building that foundation. 1 John 3, 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, unveiled faces. And everyone, listen to this, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, literally just the expectation of Jesus coming back and seeing him face to face changes you right now today. Literally, just all of a sudden changes you, changes how you see things, what you value, changes, starts to change attitudes and behaviors in these things. It's called the Visio Day, right? The day where we see him with unveiled faces. We're purified just by thinking on Jesus's return. We are to prepare our hearts of that heavenly meeting. We're to fix our eyes on eternity. The life, this life is compared to a vapor, compared to eternity and the glory that awaits, right? It puts suffering in perspective. It put sacrifice into perspective. It put generosity into perspective because I'm laying up treasures in heaven. I don't have to build riches here because they actually don't translate there. I want to invest in what actually translates it. It changes generosity. It changes kindness and gentleness. That like God is saving, seeking and saving the lost. That's what this time is for. We are to look at Christ's victory, who is one, and that He'll bring that victory through every inch of the universe, every place the sole of your foot treads, it will belong to you. And that same mindset that like. This universe belongs as part of our inheritance, this restored. There's a boldness there to this and for us. Would anything change if you knew that Jesus was coming back at the end of the week? I'll have to play that in my head. Like, for some reason, he's like, hey, I know I said nobody knows the day or the hour, but I like you. 
I'm don't tell anybody else. No, just get I'm coming back in five days. Does anything change in your mind? Five days. And Jen, that's the genius of him saying knowing knows the day or the hour. I, it's I'm it could be by the end of today. I've always imagined I would love to just be worshiping. Andrew's playing or Matt singing, and all of a sudden they get really good. eyes closed, and you're like, what is happening? They're going next level. And they're just like, you're like, and everybody's singing so well. Like, Tony, you sing so well. Your eyes still closed. And then you open it in your glory. It literally could happen today. See how it's the mind and the world wants to conform and say, oh no, you got to burn yourself out and you got to get this and work for this and spend your life this way. And the hope of salvation is coming in and saying, oh, eternity. It's already begun. Eternity isn't something that's coming. When you come to Jesus, eternity starts. Eternal life, everlasting life. So I think sometimes our hopes are divided too. We're building on the sand and on the rock. A singleness of hope though, is our life shaped, structured, and directed by the pursuit of one glorious, hope-fulfilling, heart-satisfying longing? Or is our life a picture of constantly changing narrative of fickle affections careening from one hope to the next? Like a pinball machine. Ding. That's how I feel sometimes. I'm just like, and I'm, I've got an obsessive personality, so I'll be like all in. I study everything, I read everything, I like learn everything, and then I'm like, okay, next. And it's just careening off. I love David's writing. He, Psalm 27, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. This is an incredible statement, one that I'm not sure I always make. And it's even more powerful when you realize that it was written by a man who is under attack. His one thing isn't safety or vindication or victory. His one thing isn't power, control, or retribution. No, even under personal duress, the one thing that David wishes for is to be in God's house, taking in the grandeur and the glory and the beauty of the Lord. We put on the helmet of salvation and think about meeting Jesus. Think about being next in line. As you meet your Savior, you behold his scars as he takes you into his arms. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So how can we defeat hopelessness or this double-mindedness? Ironically, single-minded hope starts with hopelessness. You have to realize, by God's grace, that nothing can carry the weight of your hope but God alone. Despair of everything else. See it for what it is. Let, ask the Lord, Lord, show me how you see things in this world. Show me how, what you put value on. We should despair of all other things to anchor our hope in but God alone. He's the only one where, because you can hope in family, you can hope in good things, you can hope in marriage. But what if that, what if the spouse dies? What if there's a divorce, like relationships fall apart? It like, we can't anchor our hope, our meaning, our life-shaping hope, expectation of what's going to happen 
and shapes the present into anything other than God, he's the only one who can hold that frame. The only hope, the only help, the only rescue, the only healing, the only solace, the only balm, the only redemption, the only restoration for a broken, dysfunctional, sin-scarred, evil-infected, morally fallen, dark and dangerous world isn't found in information, socialization, education, political solution, psychological insight, or personal reformation, but in the willing birth, righteousness, humiliation, suffering, sacrifice, and resurrection of God, man, the Redeemer, Jesus. No idea can liberate, no power can save, no institution can redeem, restore, resuscitate, or recreate what sin has destroyed. So a son had to come, son of God, son of man, creator, came to recreate. The Savior came to the sacrifice, to be the sacrifice. The blessed one came to suffer, and in suffering to bless the world with hope, help, rescue, healing, solace, balm, redemption, and restoration. The cost of it all was his life. It was his birth mission, his resurrection victory. History marched toward his coming. There was no other way that he could save us, but he was glad to do it. Nothing else can carry the weight of our hope, but Jesus alone can carry the weight. So we put on the hope of salvation. So there's some theology I want to read Psalm 27 again, and I'll be done. We'll just look at verse one. The Lord is light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? I left some words out there on purpose. Because the difference between going away with the theology of hope today and it penetrating your heart is to read it in the way that David said it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This hope isn't just an idea. It's not just a theology, but it's something that's for you personally. Like he rescued you. He knows all about you. He knows all the hidden rooms. He knows the things that you would never tell people. At least you think you wouldn't. He knows it all and he loves you. He's after you. Like, like this has to go from just being something we know into something that's for us. Like this eternity where he's restoring all things includes you on purpose. Like he's taken note of you. It says that he keeps your tears in his bottle, the psalmist writes that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, not in a pencil, but in his blood. He knows you, he loves you. And we need to despair of all other things, putting our hope in all other things, and be liberated and be free. Like whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And when our hopes are anchored onto people or places or achievements or things, we are not free people. We're tethered to the things of this world. And we're being conformed into the image of this world. But when our hope is anchored in him, when he is 
who we're after, who we're for. Like that changes everything. We're free. That's why the apostles were like, what can man do to us? Nothing. You can't take Jesus away. You put us in prison. We're not in prison. We're free. We've been liberated from the prison of Satan, sin, and death. We're free. It just changes how we touch and walk through this world. It changes things. And so I would say bring hopelessness and ask God to do that for us. Because we can't just go generate it. We can't work hard. Okay, now I'm going to make this mine. We have to just cast ourselves on the mercy of God and come boldly before his throne to obtain grace in the time of need. Oh, he loves doing. He loves when you come to the throne and say, I need help. I will see this. I want this in my life. I want to be shaped by hope. I need you to do it. My, I'm too wily in this way and that way. And the new shiny thing has caught my attention. I need you to grab my face in your nail scarred hands and just hold me. I need you to capture. I need you to rescue me once again. I need you to take me captive unto you. And that is the hope. And that's the helmet that we wear. The Lord appeared to him. Jeremiah 31.3 says, From far away, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You have been saved. Be thankful. You are being saved. You are being made like Christ. Yield to that ongoing work. You will be saved. That work will one day be finished as you stand with him face to face. The helmet of salvation fuels thankfulness. Like the leper who came back and worshiped, I have been saved. The helmet of salvation encourages my present surrender to his work, rescuing me daily from the power of sin and making me more like my Jesus. The helmet of salvation grounds my assurance that I am my beloved's and he is mine and strengthens my hope that the night is far spent and the day is at hand, that salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He's coming soon. Are we ready to meet him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just this aspect of the armor and spiritual warfare, the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Lord, we just ask for help. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need your rescue, Lord. Every moment of every day. Lord, we need to lean on you, lean into you to be our everything. God, we pray that you would capture our hearts once again with your beauty, with your gloriousness. That, Lord, you would just make much of yourself in our hearts right now. So we thank you. We thank you, Lord, again, that you broke bread and said, this is my body that's broken for you, that you gave thanks. That you're willing, Lord, to come and to chase us and to rescue us that your blood was shed, that it's the only way that we have redemption, a life for a life. You had to, your life exchange for our life. It's the only way. So Lord, we just say thank you. We can't wait for the day where we see you face to face. So continue your work in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen.